Paris Plus could actually be a good thing for Freeze. You know, novelty is a big draw, and I think nobody wants to miss the debut of Paris Plus. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. The art industry was caught by surprise earlier this year when it came to light that Paris's long-standing art fair, FIAC, was being ousted from its precious October slot at the formidable Grand Palais. But an even bigger surprise was the reason why. It turned out that none other than Art Basel, the biggest art fair of all, would be taking its place with a fresh vision for the French art capital. Enter Paris Plus, the newest fair in the Art Basel portfolio that aims to act as a bridge between the French institutional landscape and the art industry. The timing for the Paris fair could not be better. Global dealers have been clamoring to open new marquee galleries in its arrondissements, just as a string of megawatt new museums have opened their doors in the City of Lights. Ahead of the fair's inaugural opening on October 20th, London-based European market editor Naomi Ray and Berlin-based Europe editor Kate Brown sat down to review the dramatic events that led up to the takeover and to offer their predictions on what to expect from this major new market moment. Enjoy the show. Hey, Naomi. Nice to be on The Art Angle with you. Great to be on with you, too. Let's maybe start by setting the scene. Paris is always a good idea, as the saying goes. It's long been an iconic town with great galleries, artists, and museums. But it had been a bit quieter over the last decades in relation to its former selves. And for a while there, it seemed that its art scene was resting on old laurels. And then eight years ago, things started to really transform. There was the buzz about Louis Vuitton Foundation that opened in 2014. So what happened after that? Like, take us on a pre-Basel tour of the city. You're exactly right in that kind of assessment. Paris, you know, in the early 20th century had a much more prominent place in the art scene and that kind of had fallen by the wayside for several years. But in the sort of years in the lead up to the pandemic, Paris's art scene was in the middle of a kind of renaissance. And that was due to a number of factors. As you mentioned, big kind of buzzed about splashy new institutions like the Louis Vuitton Foundation opened up and then... Lafayette Anticipations was another one of those in 2018. And then, of course, there was the long-awaited Pinot collection in the Bourse du Commerce, which opened in 2021, which was bound to bring a lot of attention to the city. Another factor was the Brexit vote. London and Paris were long kind of rivaling art scenes, and Brexit saw a lot of UK galleries and international galleries who wanted to have a foothold in the European Union, kind of rushing to open up an outpost in Paris. And that included some of the mega galleries like David Zwerner and White Cube. At the same time, Paris's auction market was getting a lot of action, partly due to Brexit. A lot of consigners kind of rushing to sort of place their consignments in the European Union for tax purposes. And that resulted in, I think it was a 49% leap, something like that in auction sales in 2019. At the same time, a lot of the Parisian galleries were getting bigger and they were kind of expanding, like Amin Resch and Kamel Manour were opening new spaces and people were kind of really buzzing about Paris. It's getting very exciting. And I think that the art fair, you know, which had been for a long time part of the art world calendar, you know, people were coming, they were going to FIAC, but they were coming to Paris for all these other reasons. They were excited about the museums, the restaurants, the kind of larger Paris scene and not so much the fair. And I think 
due to this kind of lack of enthusiasm for the fair that was having an impact on dealers and on sales. I think everyone was kind of feeling sort of something wasn't quite right with the fair. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'd noticed in recent years that some regular international galleries had like slowly stopped appearing there and this kind of thing. But nevertheless, like it seemed that FIAC was this stalwart of sorts, although I think your reading is correct, like it was sort of just there. (laughs) But anyway, it did have this long history, right? Like I think it started in the 1970s. And as you wrote about in your coverage last year, when you were there, a dealer told you that it really does have a unique collector profile as compared to the collectors who go to Fries in Basel. So it was sort of presented as a unique offering. And You know, I think people did support it, too, because it was really the only big fair in Paris and the French gallery scene had a stake in that, of course. Is that an accurate picture? I mean, you were at the last edition of FIAC before it was booted out of the Grand Palais. So I'm curious what your take was on what it was like. Yeah, I mean, obviously framing it that way, you kind of tend to take a little bit of a different eye on things. Hmm. I went last year and, and it was, I mean, it was also a weird year for an art fair, you know, things had just sort of started opening back up from the pandemic. There was kind of a crush of art fairs that all kind of happened, you know, in the span of a couple of weeks. But still, you know, 170 galleries turned up from 25 different countries, which is kind of standard. It's not particularly small. It was also exceptional because I think, you know, it was the first time the fair was taking place outside of the Grand Palais, which is what is kind of the venue that has been synonymous with FIAC for these many years. And instead, it was in a temporary structure on the Champ de Mars, which is next to the Eiffel Tower, because the original venue is undergoing reconstruction until 2024. So that was kind of different and maybe a bit disappointing, I think, compared to that sort of other magnificent venue. Even if there is a view of the Eiffel Tower from the Champagne Lounge, it still doesn't quite have the same kind of heft. Add that to what I was saying about this kind of sense of exhaustion, I think, you know, For a couple of years, we sort of put pause on this kind of relentless cycle of travel in the art world. And people were excited, but they had just come back from Art Basel and then Freeze London. I think a lot of people were quite exhausted by this. A lot of people were sick. I think I personally was on my sixth cold of the season. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) some galleries were also complaining about inventory, you know. They were selling stuff. And by the time FIAC was coming around, it was becoming a problem for the inventory. And I think because of all these reasons, sales were maybe a bit lackluster. Even take the mega galleries, which you go to an art fair regularly, usually, you know, sort of halfway through the first day, these sales reports start to come into your inbox. You know, really big ticket sales from all the mega galleries, your Hauser and Worth and White Cube, and they're all reporting a wonderful fair. The story was a little bit different last year sort of halfway through the opening day, instead of these kind of magnificent news pinging into our inbox, journalists got this kind of blistering email that was circulated by David Zwerner, who, if you remember, his gallery was actually one of the first galleries that opened up in Paris post-Brexit. And he was complaining about the sales. I have the quote up here. He said, I'm a little disappointed after the vibrancy of Freeze with sales at FIAC. Paris is such a great city for a fair, but FIAC has tended to underperform for us compared with other major fairs. I feel like as journalists, no one ever gives us an unsolicited complaint in this business, and especially not when they're at a fair on the record. I remember when this came into our inboxes in the morning, we were all like super puzzled. And of course, hindsight now is 2020. I wonder, do you think that the comment was some sort of a plant? I mean, it certainly looks like some kind of groundwork was being laid there because 
as you say, it's weird that any gallery would sort of badmouth a fair to the press. I mean, especially any gallery that was hoping to secure an invite to the fair the next year. And why would somebody risk that unless maybe they had reason to believe that there wouldn't be a fair next year to get invited to? We don't know. It's pure speculation whether there was some kind of stealth campaign that was already being put into place by Art Basel, or they were kind of testing the waters or making sure that they had dealers on their side or kind of framing this so that it wasn't a huge surprise. But, you know, we don't know. I mean, why would someone like Zorner be motivated for things to change? I think his comment was about sales. So to take the comment at face value, I think we could just have a look at some of the sales and numbers and how they were doing. Last year, the highest sales figure that was reported on the first day, at least that I got, was from Tadeus Ropak Gallery, and that was 2.8 million for a prime period Rauschenberg work. But that was kind of an outlier in terms of the sales that I was hearing early on. Most of the sales that I was getting were in the lower and kind of mid-range price bracket. And even when I went to go talk to Hauser and Worth about sales, who are usually quite keen to show that the gallery is doing the best, I think Mark Payer told me that he saw FIAC more as a brand exercise than a sales opportunity. And I think that that's quite surprising coming from a gallery of that stature. They still said, you know, they sold a George Kondo painting for 1.5 million at FIAC. But for comparison, at Art Basel that had happened just a couple of weeks earlier, they'd sold a Philip Gustin painting for 6.5 million. So I think, you know, there was a big difference. And to hear that, and again, at the time I was a bit puzzled and I was kind of thinking, huh, it's very weird because nobody's saying directly sales are bad. Well, <laughs> David Zorner was, but um, it was kind of a bit curious. I don't know if I necessarily noticed like straight off what was happening. Looking back on it, I think it's fair to say that the writing was kind of on the wall for FIAC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the groundwork for a coup was definitely there, especially when you read off those numbers from such heavyweights in the industry. I guess right after that, a couple months later, just after FIAC had closed, Chris Durkin, president of the Grand Palais, who weird side note, but had left Berlin for being a huge disruptor of the local scene here, funnily enough, in a totally different context. He sent like a small shockwave through the Paris art scene when he announced that the Grand Palais would have an open call for its October fair slot, which, as I mentioned earlier, had been FIAC slot for decades. That was sort of a jaw drop moment. And I mean, maybe Zwerner knew it was coming, but we were all kind of scrambling. We were super surprised. Yeah, the news kind of broke about this open call right before Christmas when Everybody's winding down the business for the holidays and, you know, not really paying attention. It was a big surprise. I mean, I saw it in Le Monde, I think it was on December 23rd or something. But basically, the Grand Palais opened up applications on December 8th and then was going to close them for this very important slot on December 31st. So whoever was kind of vying for that slot better put their proposal together pretty snappily. And I think for that reason, FIAC's parent company, RX France, They were complaining. They were like, wait, we're being blindsided here. We'd already informally agreed that we would continue the contract at this space. And there must be something else going on here. The Grand Palais did concede that they had opened up to an open call because it had received an offer from a competitor. And there was sort of so much going on in the French press back and forth. And I think the president of RX France called the open call a hostile eviction attempt. You can imagine why they might. And they were kind of being forced to work against the clock to come up with a proposal for, I think, a seven-year project. And this is all happening at a time where I think even internally, RX was kind of restructuring its management. It has two fairs, actually. It it oversees FIAC and also Paris Photo. And it had decided to merge the management of both fairs. And it had cut, you know, I think it was a third of the team. So 
this is all happening at a kind of wind down period of the year, short notice, having to turn something around very quickly. So I can imagine that that was a seismic kind of announcement for RX France. And I think the Grand Palais side of things, I think it's a business at the same time. I think it had happily accommodated FIAC for many years. And I think it is only fair, you know, if you do get a kind of competing offer for the space that you sort of give everybody a fair shake to compete. But it does seem like the timing was not very convenient for anyone. On the other hand, you kind of have to think about the sort of moment that we were coming off of this pandemic moment, I think, in 2020. RX cancelled FIAC and Paris Photo on super short notice. I think the announcement came out like a few days before the fairs were due to open. So I think that's a big sort of black hole on the accounts team. And I think Chris Durkin actually said that they never invoiced RX for anything, even though these events were both cancelled at the last moment. So yeah, the decision was set to be announced in January and everyone was kind of wondering Whoever's going to win this must be someone who's got the resources that can prepare this seven-year plan in a short period of time. So we kind of figured it might be some of the obvious candidates, the two bigger fairs, which are Freeze or Art Basel. And of course, as journalists, we all reached out for comment and everybody stayed quiet, at least until January when the announcement was made. And I think it was you, actually, who reported on that announcement for us. So maybe you'd like to take us through what happened there. I remember, actually, we were all placing our bets. I think some of us thought it would be Freeze due to their recent expansion in L.A. and the fact that their parent company, Endeavor, had recently gone public. So it seemed like a good chance. But of course, in hindsight, Art Basel was the more obvious one. They have the means and it was time to make a move. FIAC was seeming tired. There was an opportunity to take a really exciting hub in Europe, one that's arguably a lot more exciting than the Swiss town of Basel. I did report on the announcement when it came out at the end of January, and it was really framed right away after it came out that Basel was taking it over, that it was not just a new fair, but this holistic strategy, like a fair with an international appeal that was going to be contextualized within a citywide program. And right out of the gates, they were talking about this landscape of institutions and the cultural capital of Paris. So it was really carefully strategized. And I can only imagine that that was the pitch that probably won them the spot with the Grand Palais. And what was the French art world's kind of reaction to this news? What had historically been a very French fair would now be taken over by this Swiss giant. I mean, I remember the media being shocked and scoffing at it a little bit, like in Twitter comments and in some of the initial coverage. I know that, of course, RX had called it sad and violent right away. And this was like echoed by some Paris-based galleries who were not happy. But of course, people have to pivot, right? I think right away, people were sort of thinking, okay, I need to apply to this fair and try to get in here. So I think everyone was also sort of holding their tongues. I do think that there was some genuine concern about the implications of a foreign fair coming in to a town that had long really loved its sort of independent flair. And, you know, the French are quite like self-protecting in that way. But pretty soon after, I noticed that the tone really shifted, especially with the bigger players. They were immediately, you know, quite happy about it. But that's not really surprising, is it, given what we said earlier? And you spoke to Art Basel's global director, Mark Spiegler, about this. What assurances did he make right away to sort of assuage any concerns that players in the French scene might have had? You know, it's a weird footnote, but for one thing, Mark is half French, which is not something that he said to me, but I think it's not unimportant in a place like France, especially with a foreign fair coming in and setting up a new endeavor there. 
I go there and I try to speak French as a Canadian. It like never flies. And so I think that there is a certain barrier in the cultural scene. And I bring this up because I think that the assurances came in the form of an awareness of that. And it really fed into their overall strategy. He sounded very sensitive about not ostracizing any of the French galleries, but having a kind of continuity with all the things that were great about FIAC, like really pulling those things forward. And, you know, it was in the name, too. When we first heard the announcement, we were thinking like the logical name would be Art Basel Paris, but that's what is in Miami and Hong Kong, for example. But I don't think that Parisians were going to have Basel before their name. So (laughs) I think there wasn't an assurance right away in the name, right? Like Paris Plus. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a name that casts a wide net. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the kind of branding meetings when they were coming up with it. There is a lot to consider, even right down to how foreigners are going to try and pronounce it. When it was first announced, I heard a few Americans saying Paris Plus, you know, with a silent S, which means something quite different in French. It actually kind of loosely translates to something like Paris no more, which I think is also not exactly something that would be (laughs) very reassuring to any French dealers who were concerned about losing the identity of the fair. So I think Paris Plus, it is uh, important that we pronounce the S, Paris Plus. And I was amused to hear, and this also is a bit of a side note, but I thought it was the kind of most French debate ever. That there was a whole saga, apparently, about a comma. Originally, it was meant to be Paris plus comma by Art Basel. And they had a big conversation about whether or not this comma should be there. They ended up ditching it. Right. And I guess they now just call it Paris Plus too, right? So the by Art Basel seems to have gotten lost in that shuffle, although I guess that is the official name. It must have not been an easy brand to sort of relaunch in a new way. I mean, I personally already feel quite used to saying it. And I think It's a smart name, too. Like the focus is on Paris. And then there's the plus, which signifies all these collaborations that they intend to have across town, which I imagine will expand over the years as they get themselves organized. Because, as you said, they you know only had 10 months to get this together. I mean, I think the concept of the fair is so far and it remains to be seen, but it sounds really inclusive. On that front, when I was speaking to Mark, it was clear that they were going to maintain the number of French galleries participating. Again, like continuity seemed very key to their strategy. And Mark was also, you know, sensitive to say that like he doesn't know everyone in France. Like how could he? And he was going to go around and they were going to meet all the different galleries and different players that they maybe had not met yet. And, you know, continuity also came in other key forms, like the selection committee for Paris Plus is basically the same committee as the FIAC one. There's a lot of overlaps anyway, from, you know, Christophe Vendevig from New York, Mark Dickinson from Frankfurt. Florence Bonnefou, who runs Air de Paris in Paris, and Daniel Buchholz, like these were all people that had been on the FIAC committee before. Then in terms of the actual team continuity continued, that was quite telling. Two of the key hires were Maxime Hodequay, who had been at FIAC for nine years. He joined Paris Plus as its deputy director. And of course, Jennifer Flay, which everyone was going to watch, was was good to happen there. I mean, she clearly had some kind of no compete because she's joining only in March 2023. So she has to sit this one out, but she'll be president of the fair's advisory board. I actually think one of the most interesting hires is Clément Delapine, who's a really important person in the Paris art scene, in my opinion. He was former co-director of the Paris International, which is the smaller fair for emerging galleries that takes place concurrently. And I think this is an interesting one to watch because it shows that the fair, you know, wanted to bring forward these ideas of FIAC, but also bring in some new perspectives and not just replicate what they had been doing before there. And I do wonder in a way what Paris Plus is going to mean to the, you know, longevity of Paris International in some ways. 
Mm, yeah, certainly interesting when a lot of the fairs are kind of incorporating more sort of emerging sectors into their fairs now. So that is certainly interesting. What about for the gallery selection, looking at that? I mean, who's in and who's out? Yeah, well, I mean, as you mentioned, it's in the Grand Palais Ephemer, so it's smaller than it will be when the Grand Palais is finished in a couple of years. So it's, again, a lot of continuity of 101 galleries of the 150 that are showing in two weeks' time. We're actually at FIAC 2021. Many key Paris-based French galleries that were at FIAC are there, you know, from Bally's Hertling to Ropac. And then there's also some newcomer galleries from Paris, like Maurice Charpentier. And I think all of that coming from different places on this sort of gallery food chain is really a good sign for its overall health. And there are new players from the international scene that have either appeared for the first time or reappeared in a few cases after maybe ditching FIAC a few years ago. There's Green Naftali, Perez Projects, Peter Kilchman, Gallery Noy. Carlos Ishikawa and Filmetter from Los Angeles, for example. It struck me as a, as a really good list. I imagine you agree. Definitely. It looks like a great list and I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody brings. But what do you think this will all mean for Art Basel's flagship Swiss edition? Paris is, after all, as we were kind of talking about in the beginning, a more kind of alluring destination to visit than Basel, where I think, you know, it's become part of the joke about Basel. It's so impossible to get a hotel. What do you think? My impression is that dealers are pretty confident that Paris is not going to like bite at the heels of Basel too badly. Ropak told one of our reporters, Anna Sampson, that some American collectors may end up deciding whether they prefer to travel to Paris or Basel in, in a given season. But he was quick to add as well, quote, that the success of European fairs doesn't really depend on them. So I do think the fact also that the fairs are nearly six months apart, taking place in very different seasons in Europe is a boon for their mutual success, you know. And of course, as we well know, like the collector profiles of these regions are quite different in any case, locally speaking. And, you know, it seems quite obvious, but one shouldn't forget that Paris Plus is owned by Basel. So any success that it has is not really a competition per se. I guess I do wonder what the Swiss dealers who aren't showing in Paris Plus might think, because, of course, there isn't space for everyone. But I guess on the shorter term, my question would rather be about Freeze. That's an actual competitor. and They're much closer. It takes place right before Paris Plus with barely time for a breath in between them. You're in London and you're going to both. So I guess I'll put the question right back to you. How do you think this will affect the British fair? Like, do you think Freeze is at risk of losing an edge in some way? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been a question that people have been asking since the Brexit vote. And I think this year, particularly, we are actually speaking before Freeze. So we'll see how this bears out. But I heard that there are quite a few museum groups who are kind of opting to skip Freeze in favour of Paris. And I heard from a few New York collectors as well who've said the same. And I think whether or not this is actually true, definitely since Brexit, there has been this perception that the UK art market is kind of going downhill. And I think one of the New Yorkers that I was speaking to at Freeze Seoul a few weeks ago told me, oh, Freeze London is a dying fair. Regardless of whether or not that's true, there's clearly a perception there that something's going on in London. But I would counter that by saying that on the other hand, like Paris Plus could actually be a good thing for Freeze. You know, novelty is a big draw. And I think nobody wants to miss the debut of Paris Plus. You know, a lot of people are coming over who might not have thought about coming over for FIAC or Freeze London. And there's been a sort of calendar shift as well. Just after Freeze London, there was a week long gap and then it was FIAC, which meant that, you know, people were kind of choosing to do one or the other. But now they are back to back. It actually makes it easier for people who are coming over to do both. You know, I'm the biggest fan of the Eurostar, which is a really nice way to travel between London and Paris. 
we might see more people who are coming to do both. And I think another thing that collectors and advisors and people who are going shopping are probably considering as well right now is the um, exchange rate. At the moment, it is in favor of the dollar. So if you're coming from the US, I think everywhere in Europe, from London to Paris, things should theoretically be on sale. Well, that is if galleries aren't planning, which some people say they will be on pricing everything in dollars at the fair. Mm. So I think there's a good chance that we will see people coming to both rather than choosing one over the other, at least in this first year. Right. I guess it's not a bad thing to have some healthy competition for you might, you know, have to recalibrate a little bit. I mean, on that note, just thinking about Paris, which is coming up, what are you most excited about seeing? You know, they have this huge cultural offering. I wonder what the must-sees are on your diary. Yeah, I mean, as you say, a lot of things. I think I'm certainly looking forward to some good food and drink. On the culture front, I think, museum shows are looking really excellent. I'm keen to go and see the Prix Marcel Duchamp opening at the Pompidou Centre. I think some great artists are nominated this year. I really like Mimosa Echal's work and I'm looking forward to seeing what she is presenting. Also, there's going to be a great exhibition juxtaposing Claude Monet and Joan Mitchell at the Fondation Louis Vuitton, which sounds like it's going to be a really amazing show. And since Pino's foundation, the Bourse de Commerce has opened, it's really worth going. It's going to be a rehang of the private collection. Always really interesting to see what's in there. And it's an amazing space. So I'm looking forward to that. I think also on the Paris front, what is quite special about Paris is they've got a really good gallery hopping scene. I think, you know, in London, we've got loads of galleries and yeah, people come to openings, but it's usually just the art world. Whereas in Paris, actually, especially during Art Week, you kind of do get a lot of vibrancy around gallery openings. So I'm actually looking forward to kind of doing that and meeting people who are interested and share this kind of common passion for art. I'll be visiting, you know, a lot of the French galleries like Templon and Perrotin. There's also a Michel Barcelo exhibition, which is on at Tadeus Ropac's Pantin space, which is on the outskirts of Paris that is always really fun to go to. And then, of course, I'm really looking forward to all of the parties afterwards. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I mean, if it's anything like Venice, as we saw, the fashion brands have really like showed up in the art world. And of course, I can only imagine that in Paris for the first edition of Art Basel Paris Plus, they're going to be throwing some cool parties, too. So just to wrap up, I'm curious, like, what are the biggest questions that are going to be on your mind when you walk through the doors of Paris Plus? I think that the first thing I'll be looking at is who is there, specifically who is there, who wasn't there at Freeze London a week before. And I think that question that you were asking me, is Paris a more viable threat to London now? You know, is a kind of a more interesting question than it was. I think Art Basel kind of has this branding power and this kind of allure that I think Fiat never quite did. And I think that that question after Brexit, is Paris going to supplant London as this European hub of the art world? You know, the arguments for it weren't that persuasive. But who knows now, they just might be. The other thing I'll be looking at is the material. I think historically, galleries have always brought their A-game to Art Basel. And at FIAC, you know, the material wasn't always quite as fresh or as well considered. And certainly the prices were not as high. So I'll be looking at the currency too, <laughs> see whether people are pricing in euros or in dollars. And I think the other question that I have, just as a market reporter, I'm really curious to see how the middle market is doing in all of this. You know, there's been a lot of comments, I think, recently about 
how art fair reports are often focusing on the top of the market and all of these galleries reporting great sales and also looking at the emerging sector and the rising stars and are kind of neglecting the plight of this significant segment of the market, which I think is particularly struggling post-pandemic. So I'm going to be going to some of these middle market galleries and trying to get them to tell me what's going on. And here's hoping that we can actually get some galleries to sort of speak to this on the record because... Obviously, it's not always in a gallery's best interest to talk about how badly business is doing, but I think it would really help us understand a fuller picture of how the market is doing in this really interesting time. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like, if anything, Werner set a standard with his comment last year about that. So hopefully people are going to be sharing great scoops with you next week. I'm really looking forward to seeing what emerges in the coverage on all these multiple fronts. And in general, it sounds like it's going to be a really superior week of art. There's never a dull moment, is there? Never a dull moment. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on The Art Angle and untangling this fascinating story that took place over the last 12 months. Yeah, it's been great. And I'm really excited to go now and kind of figure out how all of these things bear out. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.